0: When we had 500 deaths a week from COVID, the government was forced to acknowledge and act on a national emergency. But now there are 500 excess deaths a week from pressures on the NHS and the Tories simply shrug their shoulders. With me to discuss what the immediate future holds for our healthcare service is Dalia Gabriel. Dalia, I hope you're feeling healthy because it's really bad news if you're not.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not looking good back in the UK from Berlin here. But yeah, looking forward to chatting about what we're going to do about it. Prime Minister-to-be Liz Truss
0: has announced her funding plans for the NHS. Give the creaking health service more money? Uh, no. Commit to keeping its finances stable. Think again. Suggesting she'll cut its funding. Well, we are in the dog trapped in hot car phase of British politics. Not only has Liz Truss said she'll cut NHS funding, she's promised to slash it by record amounts. Here she is at last night's Tory leadership hustings in Birmingham.
2: Given your plans to, to um, on national insurance, what will you do about the crisis? I don't think it's a, it's too uh, too much of a, a stretch to use that word about social care in this country. How would you solve the problems facing social care, which are truly immense?
3: So I, I still would spend the money. I would just take it out of general taxation rather than raising national insurance. But I would spend that money in social care. The fact is quite a lot of it has gone into the NHS. I believe it should go to local authorities to deal with the very real issues in social care. Because the problem we've got at the moment is people are in beds in the NHS who would be better off in social care beds. So put the money into social care, free up more space in the National Health Service and empower the front line in the National Health Service because there are still too many central diktats going to the front line. People on the front line feel disempowered. You know, we're seeing increasing numbers of people leaving the profession. So those are the issues we need to deal with.
2: These services are starved of funds now. Hard to dispute that. You are proposing well, to sorry, cut do,
3: We We put these extra money in. We put the extra 13 billion in. And what people who work in the NHS tell me is the problem is the number of layers in the organisation they have to go through to get things done, the lack of local decision-making. That's what people are telling me. That's what people are telling me is the problem rather than a lack of funding. So let's just get this straight.
0: Trust's plan is to reverse the national insurance rise that Rishi Sunak put in place in April. You'll remember that that rise was intended to fund social care. But then she'll replace the money that would have gone to community-based social care, some £13 billion pounds per year, by snatching it out of the NHS. That would be a huge cut in NHS funding. In fact, it would amount to 10% of the NHS's overall funding in 2021 to 2022, which is £136 billion. But Truss has history when it comes to proposing 10% cuts to the NHS. In 2009, when she was deputy director of the think tank Reform, it published a report on public funding called Back to Black, and it's Kind of an apt name, it's taken from the Amy Winehouse album, which is about utterly destroying yourself after a crisis. In the report, they called for a 10% cut to doctors' pay, as well as for patients to pay for GP appointments. At the same time, she published an article in The Spectator in which she made it clear that she doesn't think the NHS is anything particularly special. She wrote this, No department can be a no-go area. This means the NHS accounting for a sixth of government expenditure cannot be put on a pedestal. Doctors' pay, which has risen inexorably, needs to be restrained. Superfluous bodies, such as strategic health authorities and health campaigns exhorting the public to stop vegging out, should be abandoned. So, cut doctors' pay, stop public health campaigning, and axe long-term strategic health planning. Why not bring back leeches while you're at it? Truss's NHS funding cut proposal is true to form then, and fairly predictable. But it's also at odds with things she said earlier in her campaign. In a talk TV hustings in July, Truss was confronted by a man being treated for cancer who complained about NHS underfunding. In her answer to him, she said, I'm afraid some of our hospitals are falling apart. The Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Lynn near me Bits of the hospital are being held up by stilts. That is not good enough for patients across the NHS. So which is it, Liz? Is there too much money in the NHS or not enough? Dahlia, I wonder if you could make sense of this for me. Is Liz Truss malevolent or is she just thick?
1: I mean, she's a thatch right doing Thatcherism. So make of that what you will, probably a combination um, of the two. More on the malevolent than the thick side, though, unfortunately for us, Thatcher was a very smart woman. I mean, I think it's actually a lot of the intention here is all in the quote that she um, gave to the spectator, where she kind of really snarkily talks about the NHS being put on a pedestal and how, you know, basically, we need to cut the NHS down a few notches. I think that basically the NHS is really, it's like a thorn in the side of the Tory party. And it always has been ever since its foundation, because it's essentially the most effective popular advert for the public sector of socializing key services, especially, you know, after the pandemic, where the NHS basically ran the only successful part of the pandemic response, which was the vaccines. that that kind of relentless popularity of the NHS as a public service, you know, even as it begins to crumble under the weight of of Tory attack, it is a, a roadblock for the Tory political agenda, which is essentially to make every single service in this country a cash cow for corporations. And especially because, you know, if the UK healthcare market was to be opened up to the private sector, it would be a huge moneymaker, you know, if you look um, across the pond, Big Pharma is one of the most profitable industries there are. You know, it has profit margins of like 70%. So I think for the, the Tory party and their sort of classmates, essentially, the NHS is basically like this massive cock block to what could <laughs> be, you know, this massive market for, for profit extraction. And so saying, you know, there's no such thing as a no-go area or, you know, we shouldn't put the NHS on a pedestal She's broadcasting that frustration that there's this like untapped market that they've just been trying to get their hands on for decades and they just can't because of how popular the NHS is. So they kind of try to break that popularity by both, you know, privatizing bits of the NHS, you know, under the sort of under the radar, but also by defunding it, by crippling it so that people begin to associate that public service with inefficiency, with long waiting lists, with, you know ineffective services. But it's not because it's a public service, it's because it's a public service that has been deliberately attacked and defunded. And so what you end up having is either people become so frustrated that they're willing to accept any change that comes their way or is offered to them, or, you know, upper class and middle class people just gradually move on to private health insurance. And then the NHS just becomes, you know, something that's used by working class people, and therefore something that the government basically doesn't need to look after at all. You know, we get this two-tier healthcare system. So I think that's the kind of ideological thrust that is behind the way that Truss is talking about the NHS and the policies that she's looking to sort of impose on it.
0: The NHS budget was already slashed by £330 million in the latest budget, but it will also suffer a real-terms fall of anywhere between £4 billion and £9.4 billion this year as inflation and energy costs bite. The health service is still recovering from the effects of the darkest days of the COVID pandemic, with large numbers of staff reporting long COVID. And that's without mentioning massive recruitment and retention problems for NHS staff, many of whom haven't seen a real-terms pay rise in years. As a result, there are severe problems with admitting and releasing patients, meaning that the NHS is being squeezed on both sides. And this may be leading to unexpected spikes in excess deaths. Let's start with admissions. In 2022, the British Medical Journal published a study that showed that the risk of death following an A&E visit increased by 16% for those who waited over 12 hours, compared to those who waited just Four hours. John Byrne Murdoch reported this for the Financial Times. During June of this year, 102,000 people waited 12 or more hours in A&E, almost four times the pre-pandemic average for the same month. A further 441,000 waited between four and 12 hours, double the typical number. According to the Office for Health Improvement, Over the summer and last summer, there have been 12,000 excess deaths that can't be attributed to COVID. But we can see from this graph that if you plot the number of excess deaths that we'd expect given long A&E waiting times against the excess deaths that have happened, the lines pretty much match up. So why are there such long A&E waiting times? It's because all the beds are full and many of them are full of people who have finished their treatment but have nowhere to go to recuperate. As this graph shows, the number of people in hospital beds who should be discharged is three times as high as it was when the Tories first introduced austerity. Every seventh hospital bed is now occupied by someone who should be being looked after at home or in a care home but there's nowhere for them to go because the Tories have also overseen a complete collapse in social care. Between 2012 and 2016, they completely eviscerated social care funding and it only returned to 2010 levels last year. But the number of people requiring social care has sharply risen. There are now 60% more elderly people requiring long-term social care than there were in 2010. What this means is A&E departments have no beds to send new patients to which means more patients waiting in A&E which in turn means that new arrivals in A&E aren't being seen quickly enough but are waiting in ambulances which means there aren't enough ambulances to get to emergencies quickly enough with every single ambulance service in England having already declared a critical incident meaning they can't provide an adequate service The result is 500 excess people dying every week because they can't get the treatment they need quickly enough and it's all because of a decade of Tory incompetence and callousness when it comes to funding social care. So you can see that Truss's proposal to take 13 billion pounds for the sinking NHS to fund social care that hasn't seen any decent money for years is not even a sticking plaster. These Deep structural issues just aren't going to be solved by defunding one part of healthcare to fund another. It's peak rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Dahlia, what will it take for governments to make our healthcare system worthy of its name?
1: It's very difficult to to answer that question because. You know, as I as I said before, it's kind of against the DNA of the Conservative Party to make a socialized healthcare system work well, because it becomes an advert for socializing, you know, other parts of the economy. You know, they've had it in for the NHS. You know, the NHS was not a widely popular thing within Westminster when it was first founded. It received really strong opposition from the Conservative Party, no matter how many times they kind of clap for carers and whatever. That is still deep in their ideological kind of structure, in their their foundation, their building blocks. So I don't think we can really convince with like statistics and policy and, you know, things like that. We can convince the Tories to fund a socialized healthcare system. But what we can do is kind of build power so that they have no option but to, or ideally push them out of power to begin with. Um, And I think basically what that needs to look like is, you know, a broad-based movement that focuses on deprivatizing our economy uh, in general, whether it's our transport system or our postal service, whatever, you know, because it's a simple truth from issue to issue that the more power you give to private companies, that, that privatization takes wealth from the poor and gives it to the rich. and. You know, you can generalize that like across the across different kinds of sectors, because if you think about it, the counter narrative that we were sold over the past few decades, this idea that the public sector is inefficient, that it's expensive, that that it doesn't work or that it's outdated. They took that simple story and applied it to every issue, repeating it so many times that it seemed true, even though it actually wasn't so we can do something similar whether it's about protecting certain parts of our, our our society and system from privatization or reclaiming parts of our economy from privatization we need that kind of cross sectoral solidarity we need the clear and simple messaging about taking back our economy tapping into that general sense that our economy as a whole is wired against us And, you know, is wired towards the interests of a tiny few rather than kind of getting bogged down in the details of the NHS specifically and allowing Liz Truss and, you know, others in her, in her position to say these very hollow platitudes about the NHS, but actually talking about it in the context of a broader shift of power. Um, within in our economy and we can talk about it using what just happened in the pandemic and the the comparative success of the public sector when you know put against the private sector we can talk about it in the context of climate breakdown and the idea that you know we need to take back our economy in order to make sure that it works towards creating a sustainable planet and you know stopping the worst excesses of climate breakdown or, you know, looking at the cost of living crisis, there are so many ways in which we can slot this fight into a broader narrative about taking our economy back in a way that builds the kind of power across workforces that is necessary in order to, to fight the ideological warfare that is taking place against the NHS being spearheaded from Westminster. Let's move on to our next story. Sex pests
0: in the sky. Why am I yelling this? Well, the RAF's Red Arrows, the fighter jet display team you see doing aerial acrobatics over Buckingham Palace and stuff like that, have been engulfed by allegations of bullying, misogyny, and sexual harassment. The Times reported that pilots have been removed from the display team pending investigation. More than 40 personnel, several of them young women, have come forward to provide 250 hours of evidence to the inquiry. Allegedly, toxic pockets have been allowed to thrive within the RAF with perpetrators reportedly protected by senior officers. The Times report that it is understood that the non-statutory inquiry has documented at least 13 instances of alleged misconduct so far, including misogyny, harassment, sexual harassment, assault, sexual assault, misunderstanding of consent, victimization, bullying, intimidation, isolation, and indecent exposure. Alleged victims are said to have been told that if they spoke up, they would be sent home or kicked out of the Air Force. Senior leaders are accused of sweeping complaints under the carpet for years to protect the reputations of individuals deemed untouchable. Normally, The Red Arrows are made up of nine pilots. They are now a skeleton team of seven after Flight Lieutenant Damon Green and Flight Lieutenant Will Cambridge were removed and placed on other duties. The working culture described in the Times report is pretty bleak. The inside source said that members of the 130-strong squadron would start pestering young recruits as soon as they joined and bombard them with WhatsApp messages. The girls who join the squadron are basically considered fresh meat, the source said. All of them are married and they just don't leave them alone. It's a toxic environment. It's all men in senior positions. It is run by misogynistic white male lokes. Armed Forces Minister James Heapy told Times Radio that the Air Force had responded to the allegations in a timely way. But some complaints were raised years ago and an inquiry wasn't started until December last year. So that's only timely if you're comparing it to the pace at which glaciers move. If these allegations are true, they echo reports of a much wider problem across the military. According to the Ministry of Defence's own data, two-thirds of women in the army said that parts of the military had a problem with sexual harassment 61% of female Navy colleagues considered it widespread, and in both the Army and the RAF, more than one-third of women had received unwelcome comments about their appearance, body, or sexual activities. Dahlia. Sexual harassment figures like this would be unacceptable in any workplace, so why are they seemingly so tolerated within the military?
1: When you build an institution that has violence and hierarchy and trauma in its dna those are the ideal conditions for the flourishing of internal abuse and not just the flourishing of the abuse but the very systematic and effective cover up of that abuse we can't forget that one of the key purposes of the military and you know i include the police in this as well is to, you know, justify their own existence as untouchable. And so just as much resource goes into ensuring that that closed system remains closed as, you know, resources that go into anything else. Uh, You know, it's like when we hear about stories about racism within police force, it's kind of like, well, like, duh, like, when the bread and butter of your institution is about, like, exerting domination and using violence to do so, unquestioned violence to do so, I think it's really naive to think that you can always control what direction that violence and abuse is, is is going in. It doesn't surprise me that it that it turns in on itself. You see this not only in the fact that we see systematic cover-ups, but also in the fact that every so often, you know, whether it's in the military of the US or in the UK, we have these like big bombastic stories about you know abuse like think about Abu Ghraib for example and you know the the evidence is right there in the face in our faces you know in you know literally in the case of Abu Ghraib and like pictures like most horrifying pictures that I think was uh, seared into the brain of anyone that that has had the misfortune of seeing them and then nothing happens pretty much you know it's like you know, goes on as normal. And that is a signal that this is kind of like part and parcel of the institution at hand. And we have to look at this not as toxic pockets in the way that it was described. But actually, these institutions are designed in a way that not only does that abuse flourish within them, but that the cover up is an incredibly effective process that is very difficult to kind of counter, if you, particularly if you are in a position of someone who has been abused by that institution, either as someone who is within the institution or outside of it. And that that process, that effective and, and bulletproof process of cover-up is as endemic as the violence itself. This isn't the
0: first time that the RAF have been in the news lately. Just last week, there was a brouhaha about the Royal Air Force having gone all woke Defence sources claimed that the Air Force had imposed an effective pause on offering jobs to white male recruits in favour of women and ethnic minorities. The unnamed sources alleged that national security was being compromised in the name of pursuing diversity and inclusion targets. Cue ensuing furore the head of the RAF's recruitment process resigned in protest and every Tory with political ambitions higher than their current post felt compelled to weigh in on the matter. A spokesperson for Rishi Sunak's campaign said, the only thing that should matter in recruitment is the content of your character, not your sex or the colour of your skin. That the Ministry of Defence would allow Britain's security to potentially be put at risk by a drive for so-called diversity is not only disgraceful, it is dangerous. Sajid Javid, perhaps angling for political relevance after dropping out of the leadership race, defended the idea of diversity, but weirdly, he also said it should not be based on race, whether it's black, white, or anything. James Heapy also weighed in. He said that any evidence of positive discrimination would be investigated and not tolerated. But here's the odd thing. The RAF have flat out denied that any of this has been going on. Here's what an RAF spokesperson said. There is no pause in Royal Air Force recruitment and no new policy with regards to meeting in-year recruitment requirements. Royal Air Force commanders will not shy away from the challenges we face in building a service that attracts and recruits talent from every part of the UK workforce. As with the Royal Navy and the British Army, We are doing everything we can to encourage recruiting from underrepresented groups and ensure we have a diverse workforce. The Royal Air Force has a well-earned reputation for operational excellence that is founded on the quality of all our people. We will always seek to recruit the best talent available to us. What's undeniable is that the RAF have been trying to restructure its recruitment process in some way in order to get more women and people of colour onto training courses. But the specific claim that recruitment of white men has been suspended doesn't seem to have that much hard evidence behind it. And it's a pretty big story just to rely on unnamed sources which, in my mind, raises the question of whether all this hooting and hollering about discrimination against white men was a deliberate attempt to defang the story about upside-down flying sex pests. Dahlia, am I being nuts? Could this have all been a bit of media management choreography?
1: It's great choreography. It's like a two-for-one, right? Because they drum up and consolidate support by creating this like fabricated threat to this institution that obviously is an incredibly central institution within our public discourse uh, and within our society that a lot of people feel super attached to. And then also you deflect from the actual problem by get- getting people wound up by something that isn't the the real story. Like this is the bread and butter of culture war strategy a you know, I'm sure you're super aware of. Obviously, this is not about people of color uh, and anti-racists malevolently taking control of the military. Like, I don't think that Black Lives Matter are out here calling for, you know, a diverse police and military service. It's actually the opposite. We're like calling for the dismantling of those institutions, but whatever. You know, the issue here is very categorically that some of the most powerful institutions in our society function on a bedrock of violence and abuse and traumatize not only the people, of course, who find themselves on the other side of those institutions, but even to an extent it traumatizes those within it. Joe Glenton talks a lot about the, and writes a lot about the sort of systematic nature of racism and violence and trauma within the military as someone who actually served in the military and so can speak to it more than any of us, you know. And of course, like if you question the power of that institution, if you question whether or not these institutions do actually protect us from harm or whether they actually are perpetrators of harm, then you get smeared as, you know, anti British or whatever. And all of the kind of nonsense that comes, that comes with that. So, you know, I mean, if this, are, if this is a PR stunt, then it is like Chris Jenner levels of, you know, turning the lemons of your own making into like PR lemonade. So, you know, at least I guess that's one thing that they've done right. But I don't think that we're a better society as a result of it. (laughs)
0: Let's move on to our next story. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? The good news is that the Trades Union Congress have launched a campaign for workers in the UK to be given a £15 minimum wage. The TUC have borrowed a slogan from workers in the US and urged supporters to fight for £15. They correctly point out that workers' pay has flatlined while corporate profits and executive pay have soared. And they've urged the government to set a new minimum wage target at 75% of median pay, up from the 66% target set at present. The TUC have demanded that the government return the UK to normal wage growth, i.e. the upwards trajectory of the nation's pay packets before the financial crisis. This campaign will come as welcome news to low earners who are particularly hard hit by inflation. It's not just energy bills and the cost of housing that are pummeling the pay packets of minimum wage workers. Data compiled by The Grocer shows that the price of many food staples has already gone up far beyond the rate of inflation. A two-pint carton of milk at Morrison's has gone up by 56 percent, own-label baked beans by 50 percent, and a bag of penne pasta at Asda costs 60 percent more than it did a year ago. So beefing up the earnings of workers on minimum wage would therefore be a great help to people struggling with the cost of living. The bad news is that the TUC's planned pathway to £15 an hour gets there by the year 2030. This is going to take a bit of explaining so bear with me. The TUC plan has two moving parts. The first is that wage growth returns to its trend between 1997 and 2009, where the median wage increases by 3.8% every year between 2025 and 2030. And the second bit is that the minimum wage is set as a higher proportion of that average wage. So 75% rather than the 58% it is right now at this moment. So in 2030, when the average wage is £20, minimum wage earners get 15 Basically, that means workers on minimum wage get a bigger bite of a slowly growing apple. Are you with me? The TUC are clear that these are conservative estimates. If pay growth after 2024 were faster, we'd hit a £15 minimum wage quicker. So if pay grew by 5% every year in the same time period, we'd get a £15 minimum wage in 2027. And if it was 6%, it would happen in 2026. The problem with the TUC plan is that with inflation forecast to hit 18.6% in January, workers are having to absorb punishing real terms pay cuts in the meantime. What is meant to happen for the next three years when annual gas bills are about six grand and everything costs nearly a fifth more than it used to? It seems kind of weird for the TUC to frame their minimum wage plan in a way which isn't all that challenging to those who are getting richer now while we're all getting poorer. Unlike the inflation crisis of the 1970s, corporate profits are at record highs. Here's what James Medway had to say about that on a previous episode of Tisky Sour.
4: If prices are going up, but wages aren't going up, somebody somewhere is making a lot of money out of that. And it's not people being paid wages and salaries. It's somebody making big profits. You can see it really obviously. In the case of BP and Shell, last year between them made 40 billion pounds profit. That is because prices have gone up, not changed anything they've done, not invented a new kind of oil and they're making more money out of it. There's not magic new gas they're supplying. Its prices have gone up, so they make more money. If we want to tackle the cost of living crisis, you have to squeeze profits to do that. You have to take on the profits that are being made. And one way to do that is to just increase the amount of pay that you're giving to people on the other side of of that equation. So, So that's the argument there. Really, this is about redistribution. It's about giving people a fair slice of what we produce in this country and correcting for the fact we've basically underpaid people for at least a decade now.
0: It's not that the TUC proposal is unrealistic. It's that it doesn't touch the fact that the balance between pay and profit has been in the favour of obscene levels of profit for the last decade. So why do we have to wait five years to tinker with pay growth when you could redistribute profits downwards now? Dahlia, the rumor before the TUC announced their Fight for 15 campaign was that they were going to come out swinging for a general strike. Is this a bit of a damp squib?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it goes without saying that £15 an hour by 2030 is nowhere near fast enough. It's nowhere, it's way too little, way too late. Like, every time I check the weather app, I'm like, the fact, the idea that we're even going to make it to 2030, as far as I'm concerned, is optimistic. And obviously, as you are completely right, you know, what we need right now, the scale of intervention we need is something like a general strike. And the TUC, as you know, the the representative body of all of our different unions, should be in the perfect position to, to call for something like that. I do think that we are seeing like a slight shift. It's not enough, but it's a slight shift in the orientation of institutions like the TUC. Because typically, the TUC normally just pretty conservatively follows whatever the low pay commission say, and them coming out for fifteen pound an hour wage, albeit way too late. However small it is, a shift in the orientation because it is outflanking the low pay commission, and that shift is a result of mounting pressure from civil society. The Enough is Enough campaign, the Don't Pay campaign, this kind of growing sense that not only is there unrest and anger, but that that anger is being channeled into organized action, you know, whether it's in the form of a campaign like Don't Pay or in the form of more people organizing within their unions, there is a sense that, you know, the streets are getting hot and institutions like the TUC are far too slowly starting to think, okay, we need to listen to this pressure that is growing. And so what we should take from that, alongside our disappointment at the idea of how late they are proposing that this development can take place by, alongside that, we can hold that disappointment, but we can also take this as a sign that that pressure is working, that everyone who signed up um, and committed to not paying their energy bills and that signed up to the Don't Pay campaign everyone who went to that that opening rally of the Enough is Enough campaign, everyone who's balloting in their unions to strike, that they are making a difference and that this is only the beginning um, and that it's having an impact and it's an impact that needs to be um, kept up. So by escalating and making it clear that we know that far more is possible far sooner and that we will demand more and will continue to apply that pressure and not just in the form of, you know, write and think pieces or or A to B marches, but by actually taking action and organizing, we can hopefully begin to push these institutions or bypass them entirely and put those concrete things on the table, like public ownership, like a £15 hourly wage now, um, not in 10 years now. But I think, yeah, I think this should be an indication, the slight shift, as small as it is, should be an indication of the fact that like there is power to be had there and we can claim it and people are starting to hear you know what the streets are saying so like let's give them something to listen to so you know disappointed yes but also you know there is an empowerment within there because however slow the the wheels are moving they are moving and they're being pushed by civil society campaigns and union organizing
0: let's move on to the next story It's become a rite of passage for prime ministerial hopefuls to let us know exactly how enthusiastically they'd smash the big red nuclear war button if they had to. No nuance, no hesitation, and I for one crave the promise of immediate annihilation. Liz Truss, God bless her, has delivered.
2: Your orders to our Trident Boat Captain on whether you, Prime Minister Liz Truss, is giving the order to unleash our nuclear weapons. It would mean global annihilation. I won't ask you, would you press the button? You will say yes. But faced with that task, I would feel physically sick. How does that thought make you feel?
3: I think it's an important duty of the Prime Minister. I'm ready to do that.
2: How it would make you feel.
3: I'm I'm ready to do it.
0: That's right. Liz Truss is ready to kill millions of people and would feel absolutely nothing, nothing at all, about launching nuclear Armageddon. And the audience? They fucking loved it. And maybe it's just because they'd be spared paying October's energy bills if we all just got nuked first. It's as though everyone involved thinks reality is just a video game. Sadly, it isn't. To update Britain's Trident defence system, the MOD is currently upgrading our nuclear warheads. Not only are the government planning to get even bigger ones, they want more of them as well. Until 2021, the UK was committed to reducing our nuclear stockpile from 225 to 180. But then the Tories reversed that goal. Instead, deciding to increase the stockpile to 260. So much for our legally binding commitment to nuclear disarmament. To date, the Ministry of Defence has been very secretive about the plans for the UK's new warhead. But we can draw some conclusions from 2020, when Donald Trump committed to the development of a new W93 nuclear warhead in the US. Trump needed Congress to approve the funding. To show how much the UK government supported that programme, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace wrote to the US Congress saying that, These are challenging times, but it is crucial that we demonstrate transatlantic unity and solidarity in this difficult period. Congressional funding in 2021 for the W93 programme will ensure that we continue to deepen the unique nuclear relationship between our two countries enabling the United Kingdom to provide safe and assured continuous at-sea deterrence for decades to come. So, Britain has already shown itself keen to see a new warhead developed in the US. And now, a new report looks at all the available evidence to predict what our new warhead might look like. The Nuclear Information Service, or NIS, is an independent, not-for-profit research group that investigates Britain's nuclear weapons program. Their predictions are based on the UK's historically close-working relationship with the US when it comes to nuclear weapons. According to the NIS, the new British warhead is likely to come online in the late 2030s or early 2040s, and our warhead will probably be very much like the American W93, a lot bigger than what we have now. Our current nuclear weapons have a 100 kiloton yield. To put that in context, the nuclear bomb that flattened Hiroshima had just a 15 kiloton yield. Less than a second after that bomb exploded above the city, around 80,000 people were incinerated, with another 70,000 injured. All hospitals were destroyed or heavily damaged and over 90% of doctors and nurses were killed. Tens of thousands more people would die in the months that followed. Our current weapons are about seven times as big as the Hiroshima bomb, but the new American W-93 warhead could have a yield as high as 450 kilotons, which means that if we follow their design, which the NIS predicts we will, our warhead could have a deadly force 30 times that of the Hiroshima bomb. It's literally unimaginable destruction and nothing to applaud. It seems to be happening outside of democratic scrutiny, and it comes at a cost too. The NIS estimates that initial development will cost around £12 billion, with costs likely to rise as the program develops. That's money that could go towards dealing with the very real emergencies we're facing now rather than towards increasing the likelihood of a scenario where the cost of living crisis becomes a fond memory. Dahlia, why are our political class so committed to killing our planet and everybody on it?
1: I'm used to feeling like I have like no idea what's going on, but I never feel more like I'm losing my mind than when I have to sit through this, like, agonizing ritual where we, like, cosplay our annihilation. Like, I, I find myself looking around and being like, so being like, so let me get this straight. Like, firstly, we abstractly decided that, you know, a nuclear war is actually less likely to happen if you flood the world with nuclear weapons rather than if you abolish all nuclear weapons. So that makes sense. But we also decided that you actually can't win elections now unless you promise that you would happily incinerate your electorate. I always find myself looking at this and thinking like, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the position where the range of acceptable opinions on this issue was either like, I would nuke us and I would feel really happy about it, or I would nuke us and I would like, have complicated feelings about it. Like, I just... I don't understand how we got here, but what I would really like to see, really, rather than you know, the kind of cliched question of like, would you press the red button, or the slightly less cliched but equally stupid question of I know you'd press the red button, but would you kind of like have a little cry first? I would actually like someone to ask Liz Trust to take us through like step by step the exact scenario, kind of scenario. Like let's actually make it into a video game and be like, take us through the exact scenario in which you would actually launch a nuclear weapon and take us through step by step how the sequence of events that would be triggered by that would not lead to absolute ultimate devastation within the UK and within Britain. Even if you don't care about what, what happens outside of Britain, with it, how does it not set off a series of events that will not absolutely devastate and destroy this country? And just like, just take us through that. Like take us through the concrete steps of what that looks like. Because as you've said, I think this, this abstraction of this question and the fact that we don't get into those nitty gritty details and show that there is no end answer to that question that does not make this entire thing seem like a complete farce, that there's no reasonable like outcome. But then at the same time, you know, I think that there's such a kind of nationalistic machismo, like whatever sort of dogma that has been imprinted in this, that it's almost just become like going on pilot mode. And breaking it seems incredibly difficult to do. But I I genuinely would like to see someone like Liz Trust take us through the step-by-step process of what that would look like. Because taking it out of that easy abstraction where you just get to take this incredibly delicate and like Consequential issue and make it into some kind of projection of your own strength, Um, but actually going into the nitty-gritty of it to show how there is no there is no right outcome if you are playing this game. That might actually begin to expose some of this absurd logic that these politicians have gotten away with for far too long. To speak at at a level of abstraction that is frankly, frankly terrifying.
0: I don't recall this line of questioning being a staple of political debate before 2017. I'd be really happy if people could correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that it was revived beyond the ethical debates of GCSE RE classes because Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't happily, with a smile on his face and a song in his heart, committing to incinerating Literally millions of people. And that was where that famous meme of the bingo card of angry red faced men came from. It came from men utterly berating him being like, why won't you kill us all, Jeremy? You fucking cuck. And now that's just become a media mainstay when you're interrogating someone that wants to become prime minister. Being the greatest genocide that history will have ever seen is now seen as an essential qualification so that seems like a really healthy direction for our politics thank you
1: dahlia for joining me this evening thank you for having me looking radiant today might i add
0: (laughs) oh stop i bet you say that to all the hosts i love it when you're here because i just
1: get to flirt with you
0: (laughs) i mean i've seen you flirting with michael as well so don't try and make (laughs) me feel special Dahlia's just like, I know what side my bread is buttered on. I want the good camera angle and I'll flatter whoever needs to be flattered. Speak of the devil, in case you haven't noticed, Michael Walker is off all this week. He says on holiday, I think, measuring up the nuclear bunker. I've been standing in for him tonight. And on Friday, Aaron Bastani will be in the hot seat. So please make sure to come back then at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night.
3: This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to NovaraMedia.com support.